0: Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor, Daryl Etherington. Welcome back to the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. Before we talk with the TechCrunch writers, here's what else is going on in tech news this week. Things are getting messy for Elon Musk, both professionally and personally. A blistering new report from Business Insider revealed that Elon Musk had twins with an executive at one of his companies, Siobhan Zillis from Neuralink. Zillis first met Musk at OpenAI in 2016, on whose board she now sits as its youngest member. At one point last year, Zillis had the title of Director of the Office of CEO at Neuralink, at a time when Musk was co-CEO of the company. Musk had the children with Zillis sometime shortly before he and ex-girlfriend and musician Grimes had their second child via a surrogate in December 2021. This is the latest leadership scandal that all Elon's companies will have to mitigate internally after allegations emerged last month from a former SpaceX flight attendant claiming Musk propositioned her for sex. As if that wasn't enough, a new report this week that seems likely to have originated from Musk's camp indicates that the billionaire is looking to walk away from the Twitter acquisition he has on the table. To read more about Elon's executive bad behavior, check out Connie Loizos' piece on TC. A huge data leak of 1 billion records exposes China's vast surveillance state. The leak appeared last week, and the leakers were looking for around $200,000 for the cash, which is thought to be among the biggest trove of personal data ever involved in a breach. A lot of questions still remain about the leak and its contents, but at least some of the data it contains has already been verified as genuine. Human error leading to a database misconfiguration looks likely to be the source of the leak at this point. You can read more about this from Zach Whitaker and Carly Page on the site. Speaking of data breaches, another significant one happened this week closer to home. Marriott suffered one that included 20 gigabytes of sensitive guest data, including credit card info. This leak happened in June and seems to have been the result of social engineering by an attacker that gained access to a Marriott hotel employee's computer. Notably, this isn't the first sizable data breach for Marriott. A leak in 2014 exposed around 340 million guest records, and that one remained open for roughly four years. Then in 2020, another hack impacted an estimated 5.2 million guests. Carly Page reports further on the site. Apple is getting more extreme with its Apple Watch lineup, according to a new report from Bloomberg. This version will be the first new addition to the Apple Watch series lineup in many years, and it's said to be aimed at outdoor enthusiasts and performance athletes. The screen size will grow to roughly 2 inches diagonally and gain additional resolution, possibly providing it with more screen real estate to show fitness metrics during workouts. It can also gain additional or better sensors, giving it the ability to detect accurate elevation while hiking or climbing, for instance. On top of all that, it could get a more rugged body made of a durable metal that the report specifies won't be aluminum like the current low-end Apple Watch. You can read more from Aisha Malik on the site. This week, we talked to Zach Whitaker about Apple's latest security feature, Lockdown Mode, and Amanda Silberling about the end of former Theranos exec Sonny Balwani's trial. First up, Zach Whitaker talking about Apple's new Lockdown Mode feature coming in iOS 16 and macOS Ventura. Hey, Zach. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. So this week, Apple introduced this thing called Lockdown Mode, which I don't think they announced as part of the overall iOS 16 suite of features and products this was a standalone release right
1: yeah no they slipped this one out without seemingly really telling anyone before they announced it, it dropped wednesday afternoon this is an awesome feature lockdown mode it's not often on cyber security that you actually get some actual good news through but lockdown mode seems like a, a pretty cool feature that could make a real difference to a lot of people who are subject to targeted government surveillance
0: Yeah, so that's what that was my impression too, reading your article. But I would love to just explain to our listeners a bit kind of what lockdown mode actually is. As you mentioned, it seems aimed at very specific users, but do you want to give a summary of what it actually
1: does? Yeah, of course. So, lockdown mode is billed as an extreme optional protection Apple's words, not mine. Mm -hmm. And it's designed for Apple users who are more likely to be targeted by government surveillance and government spyware, like journalists, activists, opposition politicians, and human rights defenders. Apple says lockdown mode is a feature that basically switches off certain key features of an iPhone or Mac in Mm. order to, and I quote Apple again here, reduce the attack surface that potentially could be exploited by government spyware. So what does that mean? Switching on lockdown mode vastly limits certain core features like iMessage and FaceTime, which are known to be exploited by nefarious spyware makers. You might have heard of a few over the years. uh, There's NSO Group, which builds the notorious Pegasus spyware is a big one. But there are also other less known spyware makers out there like Citrox and Kanduro. These are also exploiting vulnerabilities in Apple's software to stealthily spy on people. And it's often this kind of spyware that takes advantage of never-before-seen vulnerabilities in iPhone and and Mac software by punching through the on-device security protections. And with those protections defeated, the spyware can steal the entire contents of a person's phone, listen to their phone calls... Read their messages and track their, their, their location in real time. So, it's it, this is a pretty great feature. It's going to help a lot of people. The vulnerabilities that Apple discovers and that are reported that are exploited by uh, this spyware, Apple fixes them. But it's an ongoing game of cat and mouse between yeah. Apple and the spyware makers, which have targeted thousands of members of civil society over the years. So, lockdown mode essentially allows you to limit those features that are abused by this kind of spyware. And switching on lockdown mode will disable certain things like the link previews and attachments in your messages so they don't Mm. automatically load, as well as limiting FaceTime calls from people you've never contacted before. And it also shuts down certain features entirely, such as the ability to run JavaScript, which can be abused to run malicious code from a website or an app. So not only does that raise the bar for attackers or spyware makers targeting certain individuals' iPhones or Macs over the internet. The mode will also hopefully block wide connections to your device, preventing anyone with physical access to your phone or computer from being able to download its contents. So this feature is a broad, extreme measure, as Apple says, yeah. but it will hopefully go to help a number, you know, potentially thousands of people who are subject to this government spyware.
0: So you kind of answered the question already, but I guess if you're listening to this and you're maybe not as familiar with the security world, so the first question to a layperson might be like, why wouldn't Apple just do this by default? But it sounds like it's because a lot of things won't work as ordinary everyday
1: users expect. Right. Exactly. Lockdown mode might be a tacit admission that Apple can't protect against every single spyware maker or threat, just like no company can. There are no mm. absolutes in cybersecurity. So lockdown mode does seem to be a nuclear option so to speak for users in switching on it does vastly reduce what your iphone can do but that's kind of the trade-off that you get for having a super secure mode and since it's optional you can switch it on and off as you need so Mm -hmm. it's not a a completely permanent state
0: zach i'm curious because you mentioned journalists up front Do you plan on using this mode or making use of it personally once it's available
1: I think it might. The, the feature isn't out just yet. Apple said lockdown mode will be coming in, iOS 16 and macOS Ventura out later this year. Till then, we're going to have to wait. The reaction so far from the security community has been pretty overwhelmingly positive, which is a good thing. I think I may end up using this at some point. Given where I am in the United States, many, well, some of the spyware makers like NSO Group claim that they don't target Americans or US citizens or anyone in America with a plus one phone number. Other spyware makers don't always necessarily comply with those things.
0: They aren't 100% forthcoming about all of their Exactly.
1: (laughs) The nature of the spyware industry means that many of these companies aren't even, many of the spyware makers aren't even known until researchers discover their exploits in the wild and actually targeting and, and hacking people's phones. So I think, you know, there could be some circumstances in which I would find a feature like this useful. I have an iPhone, you know, even though it may seem like a futile thing to check my phone every once in a while to make sure there's no spyware logs on there. And it's something that I do just to take precautions. Mm. But there will be circumstances when I leave the United States, if I go on vacation or go on a trip somewhere that I'm not protected by the safe space, so to speak, of the United States, right. where this feature will certainly be very, very helpful for, for me and for other people.
0: Yeah, and so you mentioned too, selectively turning it on and off. So I suppose the people who would want to take advantage of this kind of thing would know like, when they're in a state of heightened risk, but can you describe why you might optionally want to turn it off and not have it on kind of all the
1: time? This Feature lockdown mode will, to some extent, degrade your general experience of using an iPhone and using a Mac. Not to the point where it's impossible to use, but it will add certain friction to your experience. So, for example, when I mentioned earlier, you know, link previews and attachments won't automatically work. It's not to say that you can't select the text, for example, and then open it in your browser. You know, you can do these things, but in order to essentially reduce the attack surface of your device... Apple's giving people the option to switch those features off entirely.
0: Like if you were doing an expose, if you were just published an expose or yeah. something, maybe yeah. you would.
1: I think there will be times when journalists and activists and human rights defenders will know to some extent their risk. They will know their threat model. They will know that they are targeted often by their own governments because the people who are targeted are often critics of the governments who spy on them. Mm-hmm. And so there, there will be times and places when journalists, for example, working on sensitive stories or communicating with sources it will want to take additional precautions and want to make sure that their, their device is protected. Because, as we know, you know data on our phone, you know, it's, it's everything. It's our messages, it's our call logs, it's who we speak to, it's, it's where we go. So this is vitally important data that people store on their phones. And so this feature should hopefully help mitigate some of the risk that these people face.
0: And do you know much about any of the specifics? Like Apple seemed to share kind of limited details, but do you know if they worked with any security researchers on developing this mode or external organizations that work to protect the privacy of individuals? Or do we know any of that information yet? Or are we going to perhaps find that out later?
1: I think it might come down the line. Apple did push a new bug bounty of 2 million, uh, its maximum bounty payout for any researcher who finds a vulnerability in lockdown mode. Ah. So there's a real incentive here for security researchers, especially those who focus on iPhone, iOS, and macOS, to look and find potential vulnerabilities in lockdown mode. And so far, it seems like the wider security community seems to think this is a great idea. And if you know, Apple has received praise from many security researchers and fellows, you know, such as at Citizen Lab in Canada, where much of the spyware um, discovered, you know, has been identified and, and reported on by them. I think, you know, as for down the line, I think we will see more in terms of the technical elements of lockdown mode. Apple does tend to release technical security details as things are rolled out. So I Mm. think later on this year, once this feature has been fully rolled out in iOS 16 and macOS, I think we will see updates to Apple's security guide that could hopefully explain in a little bit more detail exactly how lockdown mode works at a technical level. Which might also help network defenders and device defenders and those who are tasked with protecting these vulnerable people and targeted by spyware. And hopefully will help you know protect them from future threats as well down the line.
0: I'm looking at like the, the screenshot you included in the article, just like trying to read all the things that it does with the features behind the alert that comes up. I'm like, wait a minute, won't people just maybe use this? As a kind of like distraction-free focus mode for their phone too. Like it looks like a lot of features that if you were one of those people who's like really has a hard time not falling into a crazy keyhole when you pick up your phone, like it might be nice to just turn this on and not be tempted to go click around on things, or also enjoy just generally better privacy, right? Fewer trackers, those kinds of things can have access to your device, right?
1: Yeah, to some extent, there will, as I mentioned, there are trade-offs with lockdown mode. It's not perfect in the sense that it's not an an absolute distraction from all the things that you might want to do. It will degrade your experience, so it's not- But maybe maybe in good ways. uh... Maybe in a sense, (laughs) sure. You know, certain websites won't load, some of your apps might not load, and so that's, that's, you know, in some respects, a good thing because you don't want you know, in-app trackers paying at your location and things like that, sure. But don't think of this as a replacement for do not disturb mode. You know, I, I think okay. that there will be a significant but small section of society that will really, really benefit from this feature. But I think for the vast majority of people who aren't necessarily subject to targeted government surveillance. You know, I, I think most people will be fine with the general precautions and their iPhones and general protections. But I think for the most part, if you're not a spy or a nuclear scientist, I think you'll probably be fine for the most part.
0: <laughs> okay, good to know. So, but it's, it is nice for those people that they now have an option between the movie trope of, oh, I'm going to throw my phone on the ground and then smash it with a big rock and just using their phone with like totally fully unfettered access,
1: right? Because it seems like before what could you do this really seems like a happy medium so to speak it is extreme for mode um and it's as i said you know it's it it seems maybe a little strange for apple to roll this this feature out almost so late in the game given that you know nso group for example has been known to be spying on targeted individuals for for years now but i think this approach is something that other phone makers and other mobile software makers can also think about rolling out into their own technologies we don't hear as much about spyware targeting android phones it's still a thing it still happens we don't hear about it as much because i think there is a general sense that maybe android devices aren't as secure as iphones you know which in this day and age they're about on par android has baked in a ton of security and privacy features over the years and made it significantly tougher for external attackers to target android devices but neither iPhones and Android devices are perfect. Uh, it right. would be good to see something like this rolled out for Android users some point in the future.
0: For sure. But it is interesting, though, you mentioned earlier that it was a kind of tacit admission that, like, look, we can't play this other game anymore. We're not going to play the, like, the one-offsmanship is, it's almost an admission that you've lost that war, right? A a really imperfect analogy is the war on drugs, right? You go like, okay, wait, war on drugs was a bad idea. Let's think about mitigation strategies or, like, whatever, let's do something else. But this is like, you know, they're just throwing that arms race out the window and saying, like, look... For these people who need this specific thing, we're never going to be able to do that while offering the level of convenience and feature richness that we want to offer. So here's the second option. Do you think they always had it kind of in reserve and then decided, because you mentioned the lateness of it, decided like this is the time to do it? Or what do you think went on internally at Apple with this kind of feature? I know it's speculation, but... It does
1: make me wonder. Over the years, Apple has been very resistant to admit that its devices get malware or are targeted by governments... But as the news has developed over the years, we've seen everything from the Snowden revelations through to corporate hacks and data breaches. I think this is a nuclear option for Apple. And I think this is something that they had to do at some point because, as I said, there is no way to defend against every single hack or attack out there. It's just impossible in terms of security. It's not something that anyone can do. But by throwing this feature to the people who need it most... Yes, on one hand, it is an admission that they can't fix everything, but it does escalate to some extent the position that Apple's in in terms of right. trying to defend against these kinds of companies. It is essentially, I see it as Apple maybe admitting in on one sense that it can't protect every device user, but that at the same time, it's saying, I, we're not having this anymore. This is enough is enough, essentially. And it's putting up that, that barrier to say, this is about as much as we can do. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a case of bring it on, but it will be interesting <laughs> to see how the Spyware makers respond to this kind of escalation, so to speak.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point to end on because it gives us a lot to think about for the future, and I'm sure we'll read about that response on TechCrunch when it arrives, as well as this feature when it arrives in iOS 16, which, again, is later this fall. Thanks a lot, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. Next, we talk to Amanda Silverling about the latest episode in the Theranos saga. Hey, Amanda.
2: Hey, what's up?
0: Welcome back. Good to see you again on the show.
2: Yep. I'm here to talk about my personal Super Bowl, the Theranos Trials.
0: Wow. What a fun way to describe it. I'm glad. I'm glad it sounds like you're enjoying it because it's an ongoing saga and requires a lot of attention.
2: Yeah. Well, enjoying is a strong word. Like it really is just it's like the watching a car crash in slow motion kind of experience. Also, I'm not a particularly big football fan. So the Super Bowl comment is like.
0: How you would actually like, watch the Super Bowl.
2: <laughs> um, I did watch it last year because I did see the horrible Coinbase advertisement with the QR code popping oh, yes. around. But yeah, it's like, this is my South Florida pickleball seniors <laughs> tourney championship.
0: Excellent. All right. Better <laughs> metaphor, which I'm sure everyone will get. But <laughs> yeah,
2: pickleball is happening.
0: It is happening. Okay. What happened this week? I know we got a verdict, right? We got a verdict for Sunny Balwani. So can you go into a bit more detail there?
2: Yeah. So most people are familiar with Elizabeth Holmes, who was the youngest female self-made billionaire for being the CEO of Theranos. But her co-conspirator and number two in the company, and also we later learned her boyfriend at the time, Mm -hmm. is Sunny Balwani, who is about 20 years older than her. He made a ton of money in the dot-com era and then just had a bunch of money. He invested in Theranos. He became the COO. He was also the president. And they were originally supposed to be tried for wire fraud together, Mm -hmm. but they separated the cases because Elizabeth Holmes alleged that Sonny Balwani had abused her and she wanted to talk about that in her case. Right. So it became two trials, but they're both charged for the same 12 counts. And what's really interesting about this verdict is that Sunny Balwani was found guilty on all 12 charges. That includes conspiracy to defraud investors, conspiracy to defraud patients, and then 10 counts of both wire fraud against investors and wire fraud against patients. Hmm. Meanwhile, Elizabeth Holmes was only found guilty on four counts, all of which related to conspiracy to defraud investors and defrauding investors. So she wasn't really held accountable for anything regarding patients, right. whereas Sonny was, and that's what's most interesting here to me.
0: Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, they're totally different juries, right? Or these trials yeah. by jury—they're not judged. Yeah, they're jury. It's trial.
2: yeah, it's the same judge, different jury. Right. So, and basically, the same evidence mm-hmm. was presented because they're all the same charges.
0: So it's a nice kind of like sample case of the replicability of the justice system in some ways. It's probably something that people will study in law school for a long time, because it's like, look, same case, two different juries, very, very different results, right? Although, do you think... It came into play very much the accusations that Holmes levied against Balwani about abuse. Like, do you think that had an impact on the jury's deliberations or their decisions on some of the counts?
2: I don't think that was relevant Hmm. in the Balwani trial. That didn't come up, but that did come up in Holmes' own trial, Mm -hmm. but also, like, the jury isn't deciding about the legitimacy of her allegations. They're deciding about whether she committed fraud. Right. I think it definitely played more of a role in Holmes' own case than Balwani's because Elizabeth Holmes testified in her own criminal fraud trial, which is not a thing that people normally do. Right. Sonny Balwani didn't testify on his own behalf. But we know that Elizabeth Holmes is like a like charismatic genius, for lack of a better word. Yeah. So... She is somehow able to make people sympathize with her at her own criminal fraud trial. And I think she just kind of was able to paint this picture of herself as more of a well-rounded human who made mistakes. And I think that she maybe did get some sympathy from the jury. Yeah. But with Sunny, it was just straight up. Here are texts where you admit to like lying to a Walgreens executive. Right, right, like it's it was more black and white. Even though you would think that what Elizabeth Holmes did was also pretty black and white.
0: Yeah, testifying in your own defense is always like a big risk, right? And I think typically yeah. the advice is like, don't do it unless you're in a real, real bad spot.
2: Which I guess she is. Well, <laughs> I and, mean, either and
0: I guess both ways too, right? But it seems like yeah, the defense in that case didn't think that him getting up there and speaking would result in a sympathetic jury, right? Where in her case, it did. And you're right about her. Now, it's interesting. I wouldn't term it charisma necessarily, but she has an ability to captivate for sure and an ability to convince people clearly of things. Now, it's funny you bring that up because we've had her. And I always do this (laughs) as a mea culpa in case people want to point it out. I like to point it out. We've had her on stage at Disrupt. I think it was, I want to say... 2013, 2014, or something like that. I don't remember when all of this started, but it was early, early on. She was on top of the world. We mm-hmm. wanted her because she was like a very successful entrepreneur doing something seemed totally innovative. And we didn't really drag her with coals through that interview. <laughs> In fact, the opposite. The member of our staff, who shall remain nameless, who did the interview, got a blood prick test on stage with the... Yeah. Artifice that turns out in retrospect, like being like, Oh yeah, they're gonna go take that blood sample and give him a full workup based on the drop, right? Which we now know is impossible because they never had a machine yeah. that could do that. But yeah, yeah. So she definitely was very, very good at enmeshing people and kind of her lies and overall approach. And it seems like maybe Bowani is better as the behind the scenes operator and didn't have that ability to personally drive impact, yeah, or convince people. And so that played out in this trial as well
2: yeah and i believe he did also have more day-to-day control over the labs Mm. so i think that could also be why he was held accountable for what happened to patients which i mean i think that is also really important to talk about when we talk about theranos is that like i mean i say it's my super bowl where it's like it's very fascinating and it's so fun to watch all of these like adaptations and read all the books about it yeah And it's, like, the perfect story of, like, a scam artist getting away with stuff and obviously... People are interested in those stories. We have Anna Delvey. We have the WeWork stuff. It's like big in culture right now. Yeah. But it's not just like a funny thing. What happened really is not funny. Like there were patients who had their blood drawn because they just were like doing their routine medical checkups. And then they get falsely told that they have HIV right. or they have cancer or somebody who had a history of miscarriages was told that she was not going to be able to carry a pregnancy to term. And that's really traumatic for somebody who's trying to have a baby and is having trouble having a baby. Yeah.
0: No, there were real impacts for real people. And that's what's interesting about the split of this. Like you mentioned that Holmes was indicted or convicted for the investor thing. And I think, you know, most of us probably who are not super wealthy can agree. Like we don't feel that bad when rich people are tricked out of their money. I I just don't, I can't muster that sympathy, unfortunately. But the, yeah.
2: Also not, not to get too political, but one of the people that she defrauded was the DeVos family. That's
0: right. (laughs) That seems great. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, so girl boss. But yeah, but when individual people who are going to Walgreens or whatever to get there wait, was it Walgreens or CVS? I don't want to get in trouble here. It was,
2: yeah, it was Walgreens. (laughs) Walgreens,
0: right. So when they're going there to get their blood panels done for a serious issue and they get the opposite results or inconclusive or whatever, or or a very conclusive results delivered with authority that is totally false. That's absolutely criminal and damaging and something that all of us, I think, feel sympathy with. But yeah, that's why it's so it's like it seems such a strange divide to be like, okay, she screwed these people who a lot of people don't give a shit about. And then she didn't again, according to the ruling, according to the law. Screw these people who would drive a tremendous amount of sympathy in terms of public perception. And that could apply to sentencing, right?
2: Yeah. And in Holmes's case, the judge threw out three counts that the jury was inconclusive on. Mm. And called it a mistrial, and then there was one count that was also thrown out. So the result of her trial was really divided. Like there were guilty, there were not guilty, there were inconclusive verdicts, there was a count thrown out, and then in Sunny Balwani's trial, it's just
0: they're just like guilty, guilty, guilty straight guilty. guilty. Yeah. <laughs> Which
2: it was like wild to watch. Like I was like refreshing the Twitter feed of Dorothy Atkins, this law 360 reporter that is bless her heart for going to every day of these trials because these trials aren't like live streamed or anything. So you're just getting updates from the reporters that happen to be in this court in San Jose and you're just refreshing on Twitter and it's like guilty and you're like, whoa. And yeah. That was me yesterday, my wow. Super Bowl. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this is a really sticky question, and I don't blame you if you don't have a ready answer for it, but do you think that racism at all played a part in this? You know, like a white woman on hmm. trial, young white woman on trial versus, you know, an Indian man, and South Indian man on trial, and the color of his skin, like does that play into it at all, in your opinion?
2: Maybe. I mean, hmm. I think especially just like in the startup world more broadly. I think both women and people of color face a lot of prejudice and get funding from venture capitalists at a much lower rate. Mm -hmm. So on the tech side of things, I'm sure both of them experienced discrimination. And there have been articles that have come out since about female biotech founders being like, it's harder for me to get funding now because when you think of female biotech founders, who do you think of? I mean, it's hard to say how much racism played an impact in him having a much more significantly unanimous guilty verdict than Elizabeth Holmes. But I think It could also just have to do with the fact that he's just such a less sympathetic character, Mm -hmm. which also maybe that's in part because race. That's true. I mean, I think these things always play a role, whether we think so or not, because these are prejudices that are so deeply ingrained in society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good, uh, subtle answer with a lot of nuance. (laughs) Uh, I appreciate that. (laughs) I try. I try. All right. Well, thanks so much. And I'm sure we'll hear more from you about the case on TechCrunch.
2: Yep, they are both still awaiting sentencing, and then that'll also be really interesting to see how their sentences differ. Yeah, for sure. Thanks.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on techcrunch.com. Be sure to use our TC Plus promo code TCpodcast, all one word, to get 20% off on both annual and two-year terms. You also won't want to miss our next event. TechCrunch Sessions Robotics is coming up on July 22nd. This is a one-day free virtual event with panels and interviews with the world's leading founders, technologists, engineers, researchers, and investors in robotics and AI. Be sure to RSVP for that at techcrunch.com slash events. Also check out all our other TC podcasts, Found, Equity, and Chain Reaction. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.